Jesus finishes that prayer in verse 25 by saying, Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me, pointing to the disciples. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That he would be in us is what's stated. I uh, guess you could imagine I've been thinking a lot about DNA, a lot about presence, and I noticed that we, in Sabbath school, when I heard Sam teaching, that we spent some time in the garden today. I think we all should spend some time in the garden. Unfortunately, we have to spend time in the garden the day after we fell. We can't seem to get back to that day before. Or can we? But I think that what brings, this, brings us to this, what brings us to think about this, and why this table is set for us is presence or lack of it. There's a statement in the Desire of Ages that says that Satan's purpose is to bring out an eternal separation between God and us. An eternal what? Separation. And we have been separated since. I think of the immediate reaction of Adam and Eve to each other. Sam, you made a very good point. God hadn't even shown back up again. But it was their reaction to each other that truly shows you how much of an impact sin had on us. They immediately turned on each other. It didn't, it's, it's now part of their nature. When they woke up that morning, they had unconditional love. They were able to love each other by nature when they woke up that morning. And by the end of the day, it's all changed because their nature has changed. I think of that reaction. I think of the separation. They begin to hide themselves from each other. And then, of course, when they hear God, they begin to hide themselves from him. Where are you, he called. Why are we separated now? Where are you? I think it's three of the most beautiful words ever spoken to mankind. Where are you? We heard you, and we hid. Why? Because we're naked, and we're afraid. Two beautiful, three beautiful words after that. Who told you? I love God's plea with them. Standing outside that bush, pleading for them to be present again. Because he did his part. He showed up again. He brought his presence back to show them that this will not deter my love. I will be present. But will you? Who told you? Who have you been listening to? Who is it that has, has, has got you to believe that presence away from me is possible and still able to live? See, guilt exposes us for who we are. Guilt immediately exposes all of humanity uh, in, in a very unsafe environment and unsafe manner. 
It'd be one thing to be completely safe and figure out that we're guilty or be exposed to that we're guilty. It would be one thing to be completely safe, but this planet, no, it is the unsafest place to expose our guilt. It isn't safe. This world is no longer safe to be naked. We need to be afraid on this planet. We really do. See, the instinct now is what am I going to do with this guilt? The instinct now is what can be done? And since nothing can be done, what we do is we begin to run from it. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. If we don't believe that we are guilty, if we don't, if we don't even uh, understand that no matter how good a life we've lived from the day that we took our first breath, that we still are sinners, sinners from the womb, then, then something is seriously wrong. Our instinct is to run from our guilt. Our instinct is to let it not catch up with us. And unfortunately, the easiest way on this planet to escape that guilt is to begin to look at each other and make sure that they're exposed too. See, that was Adam's instinct all of a sudden. Oh, Adam, what have you done, man? It was the woman. His instinct automatically was to expose her. Because maybe if I expose her, then you won't be looking at me. That's our instinct now. We don't have any other place to go. We don't have any other thing to do with it. So we learn very, very young that we could use our fellow children, we could use our fellow brothers and sisters for that purpose. And we expose and we make sure that everyone else knows. Because as long as I can expose somebody who's worse than me, then I don't have to deal with my guilt. And think of how that instinct uh, creeps into every bit of life, social life, cultural, and yes, even church. Our instinct then is to belong to groups and churches that exclude other people who are exposed because then we can feel better about ourselves. Let's get together and be good together, keep out all the others, so that we can have somebody to point our fingers at. Guilt wrecked human fellowship at its very core. A perfect example is this very ritual that we are called to take part in. We have argued and debated over this very ritual for 2,000 years now. Who can take communion? Who doesn't? Who believes what that happens when you say the words over it? And who doesn't? Who's worthy? Who's unworthy? Are you really going to take place, take part in this in an unworthy manner? We other everybody over everything. And I think because our guilt has nowhere to go. And I can feel better about myself if I believe that I belong at this table and you don't. It's an endless cycle. 
It isn't, it isn't just the, the horror of not being able to deal with our own guilt. It's what we do to each other. I mean, I mean, guilt can infect us at the core before we even know what has happened. Ask any, ask any child who went through anything at home. You can't tell a child it's not their fault. They automatically assume what? They assume guilt. If things were bad at home, bad between uh, mom and dad, bad uh, in, in any sort of situation, the child carries that guilt away. I tell you, I've been thinking a lot about it. Do you remember the West Nickel Mines Amish School massacre in 2006? How quaint. A church shooting that only killed six. We forget about it now because of all that have come before. But this was different. It was an Amish school. And at least for a few days, some people, uh, we, we began to, I guess, explore and really learn some things about the Amish and the Mennonites, these very remarkable believers who live on our soil and, and how they handle guilt. One of the first lines that I read about the story uh, came from a, from a newspaper article. I'm not sure uh, which newspaper it was from, but they said that the shooter was driven by guilt. And as soon as they said that, I, I, I just said, well, you know what? I'm not surprised. Don't get me wrong. I'm appalled by the act, but I'm not surprised by the reason. Unresolved guilt might be at the root of the most abhorrent of human behavior. This proves it. In the days after the shooting, the, the, the nation stood by and watched these people deal with their grief, and the way that they dealt with their grief is that they wanted to deal with the shooter's guilt because they were taught that if you walk with Jesus, you will treat people the way Jesus asked us to treat them. On the day of the shooting, it says, a grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, we must not think evil of this man. Another Amish father noted, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God. Jack Meyer, a member of the Brethren community living near the Amish in Lancaster County, explained, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. And like I said, it, 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 it rocked the opinions of many. There were people that said that this, this shouldn't be done, it can't be done. There were other Christians saying, you can't, you can't be this way. And, and the reason other Christians began to, to, to say it is why? It's because we knew we couldn't do it. A Roberts family spokesman said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family, the, fam the Roberts family is the family of the shooter comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. 
Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow, parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arms, reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish also set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter. About 30 members of the Amish community attended Robert's funeral, and Marie Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. Marie Roberts wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors, thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. She wrote, your love for your family, for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, I sincerely thank you. As I said, some commentators criticized the quick and complete forgiveness in which the Amish responded, arguing that forgiveness is inappropriate when no remorse has been expressed and that such an attitude runs the risk of denying the existence of evil, while others were supportive, though. Donald Craybill and two other scholars of Amish life noted that letting go of grudges is a deeply rooted value in Amish culture which reminds forgiving martyrs including Dirk Willems and Jesus himself. They explain that the Amish, will, the Amish willingness to forego vengeance does not undo the tragedy or pardon the wrong but constitutes that very important first step toward a future. God knew what guilt would do, wouldn't he? When he uttered the words, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he's not talking about death there. He's talking about the death of the way that we could relate to people, the death of how we relate to God. It's not necessarily death. If he, if he had meant death, death, they, 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 would have, they would have died as if they had just eaten poison but instead the poison infected humanity. It's a death of God's ways. And so here we are. I did a word search and in all the Hebrew scriptures, the word for guilt is used 84 times. And one of the reasons why it's used so many times is that each sin, talking about being guilty of it, uh, or, or it, you know, when they conclude, when it lists a sin and it says, it shall be guilty, then the guilt offering comes after it. So guilt's used twice for every sin, almost rubbing it in, right? But then you move and you come to this verse when you're looking through those 84 times. And Isaiah 53, 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. It's the next time the word is used. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. The Jewish Publication Society uh, put out in uh, 1985 in, in, of the the new version of the, based on the Masoretic text, the, the Tanakh says, but the Lord chose to crush him by disease, that if he made himself an offering for guilt. 
he might see his offspring and have long life. And through him, the Lord's purpose might prosper. That's what we come to this table for. We come to celebrate his willingness to be present again. We can can debate all we want as to how God feels about Adam and Eve after the fall. You can debate all you want. I've heard outright anger. I've heard, oh, he was disappointed. I've heard all those things. But we we can argue all we want. But the fact of the matter is, is that if their sin had meant that much to him, would he have shown up the next day offering them the same relationship that he offered them the day before, offering the same presence that he gave them the day before? I don't hear anger, I don't hear disappointment. I hear sadness as his heart breaks, knowing what we're in for. And when you read a little later on in in the narrative, he calls a lamb over and he covers them, provides for them. He said, you guys, you've changed the rules of the game. You're not going to want me around. See, it's when we, we begin to then limit the presence of God. We'll stay in the bush until he goes away. We'll walk away as fast as we can. God said, I'm going to be present. I'm going to do whatever you can give me. You give me, you give me just a little bit, I'll, I'll be there. I'm gonna, I, you're not going to want me. But you give me whatever you give me and I will remain present until one day, one day, I will actually sit at a table and invite you into my presence again. And we proved it to him how how we felt about it too, didn't we? We were willing to relegate him to the smallest room in the temple, sitting on a little ice box, ice chest in there one day per year, one human, one bit of contact while he said a prayer. He took it though, didn't he? Until one day, our high priest sat down at a table and said, here, this is the bread of my body. Take and eat it. Be present. That's what I think we forget sometimes. We talk about the bread on the table but we also remember that the bread of life is actually at the table. His presence is at the table, not just on the table, but at the table. And the invitation is permanent. Because as we celebrate this, however many times per year that we do to, to do so in the remembrance of him, there will be one day when we'll seat at that table of the marriage supper of the lamb and never ever have to get up and leave it. And we'll get up and, and, and uh, we won't be able to leave him behind. Sorry, but if you think that you're gonna get up after you're done eating at the marriage supper of the lamb and go home and close your door, Jesus is gonna be right behind you. Jesus is gonna be here, he's gonna be there. He's gonna be ever present. How, is, how do you think that we can live forever? It's because his presence will be forever. And he'll find a way. So I'll close with 
a passage from God's Amazing Grace that Ellen White devotional put out so many years ago. In a devotion titled, Where Sins May Be Blotted Out, she quotes Isaiah 43, 25 to open, says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Some seem to feel that they must be on probation, must prove to the Lord that they are reformed before they can claim his blessing. But they may claim the blessing of God even now. They must have his grace, the spirit of Christ, to help their infirmities, or they cannot resist evil. Jesus loves to have us come to him just as we are, sinful, helpless, dependent. We may come with all our weaknesses, our folly, our sinfulness, and fall at his feet in penitence. It is to his glory to encircle us in the arms of his love, to bind up our wounds, to cleanse us from all impurity. Here is where thousands fail. They do not believe that Jesus pardons them personally, individually. They do not take God at his word. It is the privilege of all who comply with the conditions to know for themselves that pardon is freely extended for every sin. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. And then what do we concentrate on? We concentrate on the one that comes next and debate it for 2,000 years to try to figure out whether or not we've committed the unpardonable sin. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, which means that the only sin that will not be forgiven is the one we didn't ask pardon for. That is the unpardonable sin. They do not take God at his word. It is the privilege of all who comply with the conditions. And what is the condition? Confess your sins. He who is faithful and true will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's the condition. Pardon is freely extended for every sin. Put away the suspicion that God's promises are not meant for you. They're for every repentant transgressor. Strength and grace have been provided through Christ to be brought by ministering angels to every believing soul. None of us are so sinful that they cannot find strength, purity, and righteousness in Jesus who died for them. He is waiting to strip them of their garments, stained and polluted with sin, put upon the white robes of righteousness. He bids them live and not die. With the rich promises of the Bible before you, can you give place to doubt? Can you believe that when the poor sinner longs to return, longs to forsake his sins, the Lord sternly withholds him from coming to his feet in repentance? Away with such thoughts. Made mother angry. Nothing can hurt your own soul more than to entertain such a conception of our Heavenly Father. He hates sin. He loves the sinner. As you read the promises, remember they are the expression of unutterable love and pity. The great heart of infinite love is drawn toward the sinner with boundless compassion. He wants to restore his moral image in man. As you draw near to him with confession and repentance, he will draw near to you with mercy and forgiveness.
I began to talk about, I began by talking about the separation that she says in the desire of ages. Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. Now I'll finish. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. I want you to go and cleanse yourselves of any doubt. And if you still doubt when you come back from foot washing, bring the doubt to the table. It's still yours. It's still ours. Doubt, hypocrisy, guilt. What else are we going to do with it except bring it here? To be forgiven, to be able to forgive. And maybe because of today, because of what he's done, that maybe today we can get just a little bit closer to having our dignity and our nature to love back as we move even closer for him to come back and give it to us permanently.